Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical freedom. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. Returning to the show today is my friend Corey Massimino. He's a philosophy student and a fellow at the Center for a Stateless Society. Corey's here to talk about the politics of radical freedom at their most radical, namely anarchism. I get asked every so often whether I'm an anarchist. My honest answer is, I'm not sure. I believe anarchism as a moral claim is clearly correct. State power is illegitimate. No one has a right to rule, and no one has an obligation to be ruled just because some people call themselves the government. Arguments for why the state is morally allowed to use violence against us and extract resources from us don't hold up to scrutiny. At the same time, I have worries that a society without any state at all won't be a paradise, but instead unbearable. Potentially so bad that avoiding it outweighs the harms of enforcing illegitimate authority. But I'm not certain of that, and I believe thinking through those issues is central to the Liberty Project. We shouldn't assume we need the state, but we should instead tackle the question of its necessity head on. Today's conversation is about that. The ultimate goal of this show is to explore radical freedom. And it seems like anarchism would be the most radical freedom of all, of saying there are no state-based restrictions on our behavior, our liberty, and so on. Is that an accurate way to think about anarchism? Should we approach it as if we're seriously committed to radical freedom, then that entails being seriously committed to ultimately anarchy? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I think of it that way. And I think the vast majority of anarchists uh, think of it that way. Not only that, but your show is heavily revolves around not just radical freedom, but radical liberalism, I know. And this view is more minority among anarchists, um, especially today. But I definitely see anarchism as an outgrowth of liberalism. Um, anarchism as a coherent body of thoughts started emerging in the Enlightenment as an outgrowth of, of liberal thinkers. Um, I'm like Locke and Smith and others. Uh, so uh, I see anarchism as taking liberalism to its logical conclusions uh, with upholding the freedom of the individual and, and freedom to trade uh, and freedom to live one's life as one sees fit. So, so I think it is just the radical uh, conclusion of those, of those ideas. But people, there's so much disagreement, especially among anarchists, of what really that means or what radical freedom looks like or what's the best way to make sense of it or realize it. So. Can you map a bit of that out for us then? Because, I mean, there's a there's a negative connotation of anarchism, which is just chaos and disorder, right? And and in the political realm, when when non-anarchists, particularly agents of the state, are talking about like this is leading to anarchy, what they mean, or at least what the the image they're projecting is of of not just chaos and disorder, but violent chaos and disorder that we need. We need state authority to protect against those things. So what is – I assume that's not that's not what anarchists are advocating for. They don't want just like riotous violence in the street. But what is it that they imagine anarchy to be from a the perspective of a political project? Um, well, well, anarchism does not mean disorder or chaos. Uh, it comes from the ancient Greek for against rulers um, or without rulers. Uh, so it's it's the project of doing without rulers. It's on the one hand, it's a political philosophy, and it, and and the ideas of anarchism go back much further than the term. Um, you can find roots of of anarchism in if you go back really far to ancient Chinese thought, Eastern philosophy. Um, Taoists arguably started uh, uh, developing a lot of their proto anarchist ideas. Lao Tzu is is credited with with I think developing philosophical anarchism, the idea that the state has no authority, that political authority is illegitimate. Uh, you can also find some maybe proto-anarchist sentiments in uh, Western philosophy and ancient Greek philosophy. Um, you have the cynics who are very skeptical of authority. You even have Socrates who at certain times is very skeptical of authority. Um, you also have the Stoics uh, as well who have a very uh, cosmopolitan and, and humanitarian kind of outlook. And so you see, I feel like, a lot of the seeds of anarchism in ancient thought, but you don't see the term arising 
and, and you don't see an explicit political philosophy uh, called anarchism until the 1800s uh, with Proudhon, with Pierre Joseph Proudhon, who coins the term. And that political philosophy is developed by Proudhon and, and the people influenced like uh, Benjamin Tucker, Emma Goldman, Voltaire Declare, uh, Peter Kropotkin. Um, and so for them, anarchism is, like I said, it's the project of doing uh, without rulers. Um, it's both a political vision of a society without rulers, without government, without systems of authority. Um, and on the other hand, it's an ethic and an attitude toward life um, of, 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 of resisting authority, um, if and where you can, uh, of, not, of not being a ruler yourself and of not letting yourself be ruled insofar as you're able. So it's both a theory and a practice together. Um, and anarchists emphasize the, the connection between theory and practice and means and ends and, and, uh, and kind of how this political vision of an entire society without, without authority or without rulers is ultimately just rooted in a vision of interpersonal relationships without rulers and without power over others. Um, so I think it's really helpful to think of anarchism as scale independent, you know, it, we have anarchism in our everyday lives and when we engage in voluntary cooperation, when we respect each other, when we engage in cooperative behavior, um, you know, that's anarchism. That's the seeds of anarchism. Certain interpersonal relationships don't operate according to those rules or violate them or involve power over others. And the, the, to the extent that we can get rid of those relationships and move past them and outmode them, the, the extent to which we have anarchism flourishing. There's a lot to unpack there. Let me start with this. What is the difference or how do we distinguish rulers from rules? Because it seems that's the crux of the the worry about anarchism as chaos is, is that it means without rules, which means then anyone doing whatever they want, which from the one perspective is – is great. People, we should have radical autonomy and all of that. But on the other hand, there's a lot of bad things that people would get up to. So there are rules, basic rules against assault and theft and fraud and so on that we wouldn't want to toss out. And and so does getting rid of rulers mean getting rid of rules? So so I don't think so. You'll find disagreement, some disagreement um, among this. Uh, among anarchists on this, um, and maybe we can get into that. But 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 the majority of anarchists thought, especially going back to, to um, the 1800s and the thinkers we were, we were talking about, um, I mean, Perdun uh, famously said, you know, liberty is not the daughter, but the mother of order. Um, you know, so they kind of they kind of flip a lot of political philosophy, a lot of social theory on its head by by seeing by seeing order, by seeing cooperation, by seeing coordination among among different people. Um, for mutual gain, they don't see those things as, um, you know, before upstream from liberty as the cause of liberty, but they see freedom and the ability to choose our own relationships and choose our own cooperative ventures as that is the cause of, of the order that we see in society of, of our ability to cooperate and our ability to, to understand each other and, and trade and align our projects and plans through time. Uh, so, so I don't think anarchism is against uh, rules. In some ways, it's it's just uh, one particular rule, the idea that rulers are bad, taken to its logical conclusion. You find a common idea in, in the history of liberalism is rule of law. And I think in many ways, anarchism is not at odds with rule of law, even though it, uh, the terminology sounds like they don't go together. But anarchism, I think, is the culmination of rule of law. Rule of law is positioned against rule of men as, as the rule of power, as might makes right. As, as people lording power over others. So anarchism is the exact opposite of that. It's the culmination of rule of law, not in the sense of law as in the sense of states and governments and systemic violence and systemic expropriation and, and, and the things that anarchists oppose, but law in the sense uh, of a system that treats everyone as e dignified equals um, that can cooperate on their own terms and of their own accord. So so I see, and, and a lot of anarchists see See those misconception uh, misconceptions as as really misleading to 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 what the body of anarchist theory really discusses, which is not against order, but looking at the true sources of order and respecting that. But don't you need some kind of enforcement mechanism? So if we have whether we're natural law theorists or some other conception of there are 
even outside of rules promulgated by the state, there are these these rules of conduct that we should follow, perhaps they're grounded in morality or something else, but someone's going to, you know, it's it sounds great, like we'll we'll remove the rulers and people's natural interests will align and we'll like we can live in harmony and we can see that play out in our our day-to-day lives like in my neighborhood the reason that my neighbors don't go around stealing from me or assaulting me is not because necessarily because they're worried about police officers but because they're upstanding virtuous people who it wouldn't occur to them to do that and they don't want to and we live in harmony as a result but there may be people in my neighborhood who would like to break in and take my stuff or might assault me and we're never going to get rid of those urges. They're pretty deep-seated in in humanity to do awful things to each other. And so we would need some way to protect or some enforcement mechanism for the people who don't see the kind of freestanding value of these, these rules. And that seems to be the crux of a lot of worries about anarchism is how do we do that in a way that doesn't entail the state or at least something so close to it that it's functionally indistinguishable. So I think, I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot to unpack in that, in that, in that uh, line of thought, that objection to anarchism. Um, and, I, and I think, and I think it, it makes a lot of good points and it's a real concern. I think I would say that, that on the one hand, if the, if the uh, objective is to get rid of violence in society, get rid of, like you said, people, uh, committing violent acts against other people, assault and theft. It seems like setting up a government doesn't necessarily solve that problem, but it makes it seemingly, I guess, uh, for some, a little more manageable because the government is not nonviolent. It's not getting rid of these problems with nonviolence. But to me, from the anarchist perspective, it's it's basically doing the work of the people who would commit violence for them by setting up an institution in which they can grab the reins of or influence uh and, and basically do violent acts that are, that are legitimized by the state. And so, so anarchists point out that much of the state is, is rooted in violence and taxation, which is the, the anarchist view as theft or extortion. Um, you know, imprisonment is often viewed as slavery. Um, the draft, certainly kind of enslavement. Um, border Borders, totally unjust, violating people's right to move about freely. So I think people see the state as, anarchists see the state as inherently violent. Um, it's not necessarily a solution to the problem of violence. It's it's a pretty poor solution, a counterproductive solution um, that I think, if we look at history, seems to intensify violence, centralizes violence, gives rise to enormous governments and uh, interstate wars and uh, essentially machines that are capable of mass killing and genocide, um, not to mention things like nuclear weapons and not to mention all the forms of more lower scale decentralized violence that the state is engaged in from police to border agents to um, prison guards. So I think anarchists would first on the one hand want to say that they don't accept the solution to violence being establishing a state as being a very good solution. Um, Now, anarchists don't think people should just roll over and, 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 be deferent to people who would violate their rights or, or attack them or, or interrupt their projects and, and lives. Um, now maybe some pacifists think that, and that's a strong tradition in anarchism with pacifism because of the connection of opposing violence. But the majority of anarchists don't accept opposing violence in the sense of just passively letting people be violent, but in the sense of you can respond to violence only insofar as you restore the conditions of nonviolence. You can, in other words, engage in self-defense. Um, so that is that is the right that we have, not to engage in aggression, not to establish governments that engage in aggression in the name of lessening violence, but to engage in self-defense. We can, we can do that ourselves. We can do that cooperatively. We can do that through firms. I mean, people engage in self-defense all the time now, and there are people in government-run institutions that sometimes end up engaging in self-defense or protecting others, those things wouldn't have to stop or stop without government. That's not the only thing that's making those things happen. I mean, you pointed out the people in your neighborhood largely don't steal your stuff because of their moral character. Well, the culture and morals, that's one set of incentives that constrains behavior, not government. And there are other things, material incentives as well. And I think ultimately 
it's not government that's constraining these things. Government is a form of unconstrained violence that doesn't have to follow the, the rules of interpersonal ordinary morality that that we tend to follow in real life and we hold each other accountable to. Um, so, so I think we can we can come up with alternative institutions that defend ourselves that they don't have to commit uh, overt aggression, but can defend person and property from attack. Can can engage in proportional defense that can perhaps provide restitution and restoration to to victims of, of aggression, um, which I think is very preferable to the state invention of criminal law that locks people away forever and and ruins their lives um, at the expense of the victims who then pay for it. Um, so so I so I think I think anarchism is is not. Um, is not toothless in the face of the problem of violence. It's not naive in the face of the problem of violence, but it, but it's kind of hard nosed with looking at what government is and looking at, at how we can uh, defend ourselves differently. Wouldn't the concerns though that you've raised about government apply to the institutions that anarchists would have to set up to promulgate or enforce these rules or protect the rights of the people under them that you know, because self-defense only goes so far. Like, I don't particularly want to live in a society where I personally am responsible for my own defense on like a day-to-day basis. That doesn't sound that doesn't sound appealing to me. And and but if I offload them to a, you know, we there there are gated communities with their own private security forces. Those exist in the world right now, and those private security forces are paid for by the people who live within those communities. And and maybe that's a step in the direction of the protection, but it's also these are very small, right? Like these are these are quite small communities that are also largely dependent for a lot of their protection on existing within a state. You know, like those security guards, if there's a murder, are going to call in the, you know, the county police. They're not going to investigate themselves. Or if a neighboring community tries to invade them, they're going to call upon, you know, U.S. defense programs to protect them and so on. So does it, it seems like on the one hand that, the vision of private security or personal security works, but only on a very small scale. On the other hand, if if it's large, then it becomes, again, kind of functionally indistinguishable from a state or at least is subject to a lot of the, the negative incentives that you've just mentioned of centralizing, of violence, of, you know, the, the state – one of the strongest objections to the state, I think, is that it always its interests are always its own. Like we like to tell ourselves that the state is it exists to protect the interests of its citizens, but then in practice seems to always privilege the the interests of state agents above citizens. And this plays out in court decisions and the way that cops operate and so on. But those things aren't it's not like those things are inherent to the state. They're rather factors of just any group of people with interests will privilege those interests over others. And so that would apply to protection agencies or other mechanisms as well, or or to even like individual anarchist communities. It's not like ideas of, um, I mean, it wouldn't strictly be nationalism, right? Because we wouldn't have nations, but the the urges that lead to nationalism, tribalism isn't going to go away. And so I guess the the worry that I have is like is that anarchism is just it's saying we're going to there's there's this term the state and if we just get rid of that thing then these other concerns will kind of disappear versus that thing is just a label we attach to certain organizations but but to a great extent those kinds of organizations would have to exist or would just naturally arise within an anarchist society well uh, this is where a lot of anarchists get into the weeds of, uh, of disagreements about what constitutes a state. So I think I think a state is a monopoly on violence. Specifically, that's the conventional definition, but that can be misleading because there's all sorts of violence within the territory of a state that's not 
committed by the state and it's not legitimate. It's not endorsed by the state. So, so more specifically, this, I think states should be understood as monopolies on uh, socially legitimized violence within a given territory, because ultimately the state often outsources its violence. It uh, hires outside uh, organizations or businesses. Um, historically it has, the states have hired private police forces, uh, this was common uh, during the labor rights movement with suppressing um, unions and strikes. And so, so the state really is what is the organization that, that, that legitimizes um, essentially within its territory. And so decides which violence is okay. It's violence is okay for sure. And also the violence of its allies and, and the other powerful organizations that it deals with and and brings into its um, operations and the, and the violence of anyone who, you know, goes against the state, obviously, is not permitted. Um, and also, you know, in, in better in better states, uh, a lot of the violence that, that we've been talking about, which we don't want, which is genuine interpersonal violence, um, that, that everyone is opposed, opposed, everyone involved in uh, this conversation is opposed to, um, but sees different ways of, um, of, of addressing it. So, so I think that to avoid recreating states, to avoid um, creating worse states—that's that's a real worry. It helps. To, it helps to be to be clear on what the state is. And I think that you're right that on some level there um, there are a lot of organizations and a lot of visions and a lot of existing institutions that blur the line. Um, it's tough because you have certain private security forces that are many of their actions are defensive. They're they're not. Uh, subsisting through any sort of um, violence like the state does, like taxation, to uh, which the state uses to support its security forces. But you also have non-state security forces that are essentially licensed and legitimized by the state and have certain um, immunities, uh, legal immunities and things that, that protect them from uh, reprimand or, or accountability. Now, this isn't always the case. In, in general, uh, you know, Police officers licensed by the state now at this point have an enormous, really insane protections and immunities to accountability, uh, either internally from other parts of the state, from citizens and civilians, from the legal system and lawsuits, you name it. So I think that ultimately what anarchism is, is trying to, like I said earlier, it's this idea of rule of law where there should be no people privileged with that Um that power with these immunities, with the monopoly over legitimized violence, with that ability to unilaterally decide what violence is permitted and what's not. Like you said, the state has its own interests and, and giving it the power to do that. Um, we'll just let it rule for its own interests. Now, the worry, like you said, is that's not unique to states. Obviously, people like granting themselves privileges. That's that's older than states. That'll probably outlast states. I think the key is that Certain institutions are more insulated from accountability that prevents them from granting themselves privileges than others. I think states are the worst at this because they have a literal monopoly. And so they have no accountability from within their territory from their citizens to exit, to leave and go somewhere else and and pursue um, some other other, uh, firm organization or community agency to defend them, to settle their disputes, to things like that. And so then there's no accountability for the agents of the state that are tasked with doing those things. And so they do less of those things, the things that we want, protecting people and property, settling disputes. And they do more of, you know, throwing people in jail for uh, smoking drugs or whatever. And I I think that there's kind of an omnipresent worry about power. Anarchism is eternally vigilant. It doesn't see any sort of hope in some idealistic, you know, revolution happening, you know, next month on Sunday at 12, it doesn't see social change that way. It sees power as always a threat, as always dangerous, even without states. Um, and with the organizations that we come up with to protect ourselves, they risk the run, they, they risk it of, of running away with power, of maybe cartelizing, of mon- becoming monopolies, of, of abusing their power locally, uh, towards people that don't have the power to speak up in their in their communities or situations. So it's an openatia. Statelessness is an openatia. And anarchism is not just against statelessness. It's against power and rulers and authority. So there's no guarantee that 
uh, statelessness will 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 reap those things. But I think it's a step in the right direction. I think the state is one of the worst forms of power and authority, and that if we get rid of it, and these alternative organizations run risks for sure. Um, but I think they present a better chance and present more accountability. If you have the ability to exit, to discontinue your cooperation with some person or some set of people that are providing you with a service, um, or if it's easier to, to, to move, uh, like you said, like there's, it's a blurry line with, with these, with decentralized communities. Um, and like you said, you know, homeowner associations, uh, those are territories, um, and they have these security forces. So, so I, I don't think there's a panacea, and I don't really think there's any escape from the problems of power. But I do think the state is more immune, more more uh, uh, prone to the problems of power than than the alternative organizations, and, and that's why anarchists are so have been so consistent in that particular uh, target. To what extent do anarchists see a lot of the social pathologies? Because you know, so one of the when libertarians are doing public policy. One of the things, one of the arguments they make a lot of the time is that the state is very good at passing a policy that creates a problem and then seeing the state then saying, oh, the the existence of this problem means we need more state intervention to fix it. And then, of course, though that state intervention causes greater problems, which then inevitably mean we need even more state intervention to fix these problems rather than recognizing like, no, if we just – Go back to the first step, which was if you had not done the intervention in the first place, we wouldn't have this thing. To what extent do anarchists see that as a similar mechanism happening with cultural pathologies that then people identify as necessitating further state action? So one, you know, one example of this, and this kind of rides the line of policy, but maybe clarifies what I'm asking about is violence related to say drug prohibition like we you know like oh my god we need to crack down on there's there are problems that our cities are rife with violence and a lot of that is coming from like the drug trade and so we need to crack down even more with cops busting heads rather than say getting rid of drug prohibition which is incentivizing this violent behavior do anarchists see that kind of mechanism playing out more broadly that a lot of the the very concerns that we have about an anarchist society wouldn't work because there's all these cultural pathologies is kind of misidentifying the source? So, uh, yes, I, I totally think uh, that's right. And I, I maybe would have gone into that a little bit earlier, but you had you had uh, introduced one of your questions with, you know, certain pathologies, the temptation to, to steal or commit violence are inherent in human nature. So. I wanted to run with that and, you know, cause that's, that's right. That's true. Um, and yet, and yet certain tendencies are exacerbated by certain institutions. Um, I mean, certainly the line between good and evil runs through the human heart as the saying goes, those things are inherent. I think anarchists can be too quick to try to blame everything on institutions, uh, on modern institutions, on whatever institutions you want to oppose. Um, and really not just anarchists. I mean, everyone, opposes some institutions and they want to see every problem in society as the fault of those institutions. I don't think that can prevent us from engaging in institutional analysis that can't have us ignore institutions and systemic uh, level phenomenon and just focus on and, you know, think everything is purely this isolated individual. No, I mean, there's interconnections in society and there's interactions back and forth between individuals and the institutions that we kind of exist and interact within and vice versa. Uh, so I think that I, I totally agree with the libertarian critique that interventionism breeds more interventionism. I think that's completely true. I think the drug war is a, a good and depressing example of that. I think uh, in general, and anarchists have always pointed this out, I think – so I think that poverty is po- – po- uh, this maybe gets a little off into a tangent with, with poverty um, – I think poverty is the natural state of affairs, uh, you know, wealth, resources, technology. We, we create those things. Those are the products of human labor and ingenuity. And yet I think states create a lot of poverty that wouldn't be there. Otherwise they create artificial poverty. Libertarians point this out constantly more than anyone that the states create the poverty through taxation, through inflation, through regulations, through constraints on trade and free activity. Um, 
And so those things create losses and, 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 and impoverished, uh, impoverishment where that otherwise maybe would be alleviated by, um, the ordinary workings of our institutions and of markets. So, so I think states create a lot of poverty and I think a lot of crime, a lot of violence, theft, especially theft, these things, it does make sense to me to, to say that these things are, would be alleviated with, with less poverty. And of course, one reason we're anarchists is because we think the state creates poverty and there'd be less of it. And so there would be less of these issues um, to the extent that we escape poverty. I think that those issues become uh, easier to tackle and less, and less prevalent. Um, of course, there are lots of, lots of determining factors to, about violence in society. It's uh, difficult to get into that. Um, but, but I think just reflective of the overall point that the anarchists do see this um, snowball-like phenomenon with, with power and with, with state um, action that, that creates problems and then it takes all these problems as forgiven uh, as, and as given and then tries to solve them with further action. And I think anarchists even expand this principle in this, uh, this, this way of looking at things to not just state action, but, but social power in general and, and authority in general. I think one of the ways in which, and this is, and sometimes libertarians often, I think, discount the ways in which the family can be a site of power and that the, and, and think of us more as maybe too much of, of isolated individuals and forget how we inherit and then pass along certain um, attitudes and traits and tendencies and, and values. And one of the, one of the areas which this is, is most, most salient is, you know, with, with uh, child abuse, with that being reproduced through families, through this uh, ideology that says, you know, like, just for instance, it's, it's okay to, you know, spank your child or strike your child um, as a form of punishment. Um, and even still, that's very pervasive, more pervasive, I think, than some people want to uh, want to say. And that is an area which it seems is that so reflective of how power becomes reproduced in this ideology of power. And you are on the bottom of the rung of power as a child, and you're the victim of that. And you inculcate this, these views about the justifiability of that. And then you go to the top of the rung of power when you're an adult and you have a child and you recreate the abuse and you justify it. And then the cycle keeps going. Um, so I think power in general comes with these social pathologies, not just the state. It, it recreates them and intensifies them. Um, you know, I think the only thing is get is avoiding it, getting out of it as, as much as we can, not recreating it. It's important to remember anarchists, usually we're on the, you know, people that are victimized by power are on the losing end, but but also the people in power, child abuse is a good example, that they were once on this on the losing end. So it affects everyone. It's like you said about a harmony of interests. I want to turn in a minute to property because it's tied in very deeply to the the poverty that you were just discussing. But before that, I wanted to pick up on on what you just said, because it is one of my, you know, in a decade and a half in professional libertarian circles, one of the the real concerns I have about the way that a lot of libertarians and liberty advocates think about the state and political philosophy and and the role of or or like what what we as liberty advocates should be concerned about is that they they discount power or the worries about power when it is outside of an immediate state action context it's you can you make an argument that you know we shouldn't if our political philosophy is about minimizing state power and that abuses of power outside of the state whether this is you know it, within the family or within the firm or social hierarchies or other liberty and autonomy reducing or um, or discouraging behaviors and beliefs and actions are should not be addressed through the application of state power right like if if there's say there's there's inequalities we shouldn't have the state intervene for a variety of reasons and that's one argument but I think it often gets spun into 
simply not caring about those kind like other sorts of you know if the state if the state is an abusive relationship that we have we have these these rulers who exist above us believe they can inflict violence upon us can can direct our behavior and punish us if we you know deviate from what they've told us to do that seems like an abusive relationship um but there are other abusive relationships that for a lot of liberty advocates they simply think whatever happens that isn't directed by or influenced by the state is fine is is not something to be concerned about and what i have come to see more and more of and it really you know it's it's one of the things i try to push back on in this podcast and it's it's one of the things that worries me the most about the liberty movement is how much of that ends up being cover for people who want to abuse power and see the state as a threat to their ability to do that that they want to maintain these destructive social hierarchies that they want to enforce what they imagine to be traditional gender roles that they want to maintain conservative or quote unquote traditional ways of living and and that state intervention is what's prohibiting them from setting up their gated community where you know women are kept as thralls or blacks are excluded or being transgender is punishable and so on and i think that ultimately you have to care about both you know like you you have to if you care about people's dignity and autonomy and liberty and capacity to self-author, which is, I think we all should, and it's why we should care about state power in the first place, then you should also care about those things in other areas and you should be liberal across the board. Um, and And I think a lot of good anarchist theory focuses much more on those other kinds of abuses of power and hierarchy and tradition in the service of privilege and so on than many more mainstream libertarians do. Um, And so I would just, for me at least, like even with my worries about anarchism, I think that aspect of a lot of good anarchist theory, like the so your work or the work that comes out of, say, the Center for Stateless Society is is holding liberty advocates' feet to the fire on those other issues, too. Yeah, it sucks, doesn't it? Uh, the American libertarian movement is, um, is right to oppose the state. It's right, I even think, to hate the state. Uh, and And yet, you know, it seemingly is at best ambivalent most of the time about these other forms of, of sometimes it could be violence um, and oppression and domination uh, and at worst uh, endorses them. And it's a shame in a way it's realizing uh, the it's doing, you know, for anti-libertarians what they accuse libertarians of being, which is, well, you know, it's buying into that framework that, well, since, I don't support the state doing anything about X. I must myself be ambivalent about X or actually just like X. Um, X could be, it could be drugs. It could be, um, it could be uh, anything. And it's a shame that the focus, the analytic focus has narrowed to states so much to, uh, at the expense of um, a more holistic uh, theory of society and vision of society. Um, American libertarians, their precursors, the anarchists of the 19th century we discussed earlier, the individualist anarchists of, of that crowd of, of the, of, of the early anarchists, anarchists like Benjamin Tucker, Lysander Spooner, Voltrine declared they saw themselves as not just against the state, but against all forms of power. Um, they saw themselves as for free love and against for abolitionism and for labor and, um, uh, and feminism, you know, I mean, he, even one of the, one of the enormous influences on American libertarianism is Herbert Spencer and Herbert Spencer, who had, had plenty of disagreements with, but he, he argued the state arose out of patriarchy. Uh, patriarchy was the initial systemic domination that formed in early human history, his argument goes, and that the state was the next progression of that, that taken to this organized, centralized, um, apparatus. And, I think it's a mistake to not see these forms of power as interconnected. I think if you 
if you're good on the state, but if you're bad on patriarchy, if you're bad on on white supremacy, those things are pervasive as well, just like the state um, in terms of institutions, in terms of ideology. And if you're bad on those things, you end up maybe inadvertently, but either way, reinforcing certain, I think, modes of interaction and certain ideas and values that help the state, that propagate the state. I think it benefits from uh, that hierarchical view of society and people are caught in a contradiction that want to marry anti-statism with a generally hierarchical view of society. Um, and, and they have to ditch one or the other, I think. I, I think so. Uh, and so I think we should ditch the hierarchical view of society. The state is hierarchical. It's one of the reasons it's bad, not the only, but it's bound up in all the reasons it's bad. And, and um, it's worth opposing that anywhere. So I totally agree. And I appreciate I, 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 that's been a major focus of what I've tried to write about and, and also what's attractive about the Center for Stale Society, that it, that it marries anti-statism with those other concerns like feminism and anti-racism um, more overtly than um, probably anyone else that runs in libertarian circles. Yeah, I think one of the the most discouraging and worst strains within the liberty movement are are the people who insist that hierarchies are desirable, natural, necessary, um, typically the hierarchies that happen to benefit them in, you know, that place them at the top, um, but, and then spin out elaborate arguments grounded in whether it's religion or it's evolutionary psychology, or it's something else that trying to justify what they imagine to be necessary and natural hierarchies. Whereas I think you're right that a, a genuine commitment to liberty involves a, uh, at the very least, a skepticism about hierarchies, a, a recognition of the way that the state reifies, reinforces hierarchies, and and an understanding of how hierarchies, whether they're state-enforced or enforced through social dominance or other other forms of pressure um, are themselves liberty limiting. Uh, that you know, we we can see this. There aren't there aren't many libertarians who would defend, say, the Indian caste system, but that's just a particularly stark version of of these kinds of hierarchies. And but I, I worry how many seem to think that other forms of caste or identity are are natural and necessary and therefore cause for reinforcing hierarchies but now i want to the you you looked you looked worried when i brought up property um so let me let me turn to that and because just such a funny word property what does that mean well so that's that i think is the big question is in so one of the roles that the state plays in our society is to define the contours of property and the rules for its possession and exchange and to some extent we can you know some of those rules seem pretty easy and don't necessarily need the state like there are, you know we might you know i have i have a certain set of possessions and if they're my possessions you taking them you know like we can it seems easy but when we talk about, say, poverty, like one of the reasons that we are, we in, say, the Western world are wildly wealthy compared to historical standards and not and not wealthy just in the way that we, you know, we have maybe lots of stuff that we don't need, the kind of anti-consumerism perspective, you know, but but that wealth has radically improved our lives in terms of how much healthier we can be, um, how much health, art, art, the, the fact that you and I are communicating across the country, recording a podcast that I just moved across the country, but can stay in contact with all my friends in a way that 50 years ago I couldn't have. And that's a form of wealth that grew out of this. But that wealth comes from bigness of the economy and and you know that the economy is happening across vast distances and with all of these financial instruments that allow us to pass things along and take out loans in ways and build up equities all of these important things and those require even more complex property 
rules. And do anarchist conceptions of property end up getting in the way of that? Like, do we need a big state in order to have the kind of huge and global economy with complex property and contract rules and so on that enable us to have this wealth that I don't think we want to give up? I mean, I know there are some anarchists who want to go to like outright primitivism and we'll just live off the land and so on. But I think that as appealing as that might sound at times, like we all enjoy going camping, it's not, you know, it's not like a, it's not, I think, a desirable way to live and it overlooks the vast benefits that that a globalized and complex economy brings. Well, primitivism is a strand of anarchism. It's not one I agree with. I think maybe sometimes it makes some good points, some good criticisms of, of modernity, but um, but, it, uh, but I really don't have much sympathy for 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 anti-technology or or, or anti-markets, uh, which is not just primitivism, but but I think this objection to anarchism is is pretty good. Uh, I think modernity is pretty good. I think a lot of anarchists think modernity is pretty good. The wealth, the 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 medicine, the um, the globally uh, connected society, um, increasingly so. I think all, all those things are good. I think that modernity is bound up with a lot of bad stuff. I mean, who would deny that there's still, you know, evils worth opposing? Um, even as much as you, even the, um, you know, the most ardent defenders of modernity who uh, maybe inflate how good it is sometimes, or maybe find even more things to be grateful for than, even then, you know, there are still problems to be to be vanquished. And so I think that, the idea that everything good about the modernity depends on the state and you're pointing out specifically, and I think it is a huge area, the property rights, rule of law, um, a functioning legal system, functioning public institutions that um, can uphold contracts and, and facilitate cooperation between, between diverse people. Um, I think that it's, it's a, it's all a real mixed bag. I think, I think there are, parts of all of this that anarchists love and want to kind of take further and there are parts of it that they don't <clears throat> but they get kind of bundled together and the conven- the conventional view is kind of that they do go this package deal modernity and the state modern wealth and the state um modern globalism and the state and so so my view on these things tends to be that i th- i think there's good reason to think that causality is the other way around uh and that uh it's 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 non-state institutions that give rise uh, more to um, these large-scale um, economies and, and and widespread cooperation and and, and uh, abundant technology and things like that. I think that especially with something like material wealth, it's more that rather than the state came along and we were all poor and then the state made us rich, it's more like well we got rich through mostly things like markets and trade. And then we had the money to spend on states. And I think that's been an unwise investment. Um, but that has been, I think, the way in which, like you said, the, the relatively wealthier West has in some ways allocated much of its social wealth and much of its, its total spending. It goes into they, the, these governments. And I think that, um, that, they, that, that specifically with property rules, but generally with institutions like earlier, institutions of order, institutions of uh, uh, social cooperation. Um, I think they can exist without the state. I think they've always existed outside the state. They've existed concurrent within the state and within this and, and, you know, outside the purview of the state um, we've had, you have, which, and none of these things are by any means examples of some sort of idealistic, like full anarchism or anything. But I think we can look at the seeds of certain institutions and pockets of certain kinds of social interaction and phenomenon and um, think about the way the ways in which those might be taken further or expanded uh, gradually to encompass more society. And so, you know, the state itself, the modern Western nation state, in many ways arises out of the common law system, which was very flawed, but a system that still to this day kind of operates in the background that, that guides the, the state and the state uh, functionaries um, and, 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 and how it developed our legal norms and our property rules and, 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 and the norms surrounding how to use those things and resolve conflicts regarding property. 
those things emerged in common law outside of the state. And in many ways, the state has kind of usurped and kind of monop- and, 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 and brought these things into its, its purview and monopoly. Now, uh, you know, other examples are things like black markets, obviously, which exist outside the purview of the state and despite the state and which are prone to violence and and chaos, I think because they don't have recourse to alternatives to the state. They have a uh, some level enough to to have the markets exist, a level of coordination and contract disputes, but it's all layered in its in its underground violence and threats of intimidation and 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 um, warfare and things. So I think there are, there are aspects of black markets that show, hey, we can do things outside the state. Obviously, the state is not the sole source of source of order or source of agreement on property rules, or it doesn't make the possibility of, it is not responsible for the possibility of trade. Those things happen outside the state. You also have arbitration outside the state, which is incredibly common in in um, in, in the West, um, in the United States, with with firms agreeing to um, arbitration, which is cheaper and costlier, or, or, uh, cheaper and quicker than um, the state usually, even now in, in, you know, in in the shadow of the state. Uh, So I think that we have good reason to think the state presupposes order. I mean, oftentimes people conflate not just, you know, the greatness of modernity with the state, which I think is a mistake, but they conflate society itself with the state as if there could be no society without the state. And I think it's the other way around. It's the, the state didn't give rise to society. Society gave rise to the state. How could you have a state without people within the state organizing themselves set, you know, such that they are a state and they function as a state and they operate as a state? Is there some other state that existed before them or on top of them that we're not seeing that's controlling them and making sure they have order internally? I mean, no. Um, so I think the go- I think government presupposes social a level of social cooperation already uh, in, in many ways. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, consider becoming a member. You'll get every episode two weeks early, as well as access to our Discord listener community and book club. Look for the link in the show notes or visit reimaginingliberty.com slash subscribe.